Second Samuel chapter number 15. I'm going to read a little bit more Scripture this morning than we usually do, but I believe it's necessary for the message this morning. Second Samuel chapter number 15. Uh, that's right after First Samuel. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 15, and let's begin reading in verse number 13. The Word of God says, And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. And all his servants passed on beside him and all the Carathites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites. Six hundred men which came after him from Gath passed on before the king. Then said the king to Idai the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Seeing I go whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. And Idai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And David said to Idai, Go and pass over. And Idai the Gittite passed over, and all his men and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zadok also and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimeaz thy son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Zadok therefore and Abiathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. All the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head, on whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. I want you to look back with me at verse 23. And we're going to read this and then turn to a passage in Matthew that we're going to read very shortly. 
The Bible says, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Look over at verse 30 once again. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot. Now I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 26. And I want to read just nine verses for you very quickly. And I think you'll understand what we're doing when you see the verses that we read. Matthew chapter 26 and look at verse number 36. The Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask, Father, that you give clarity of thought this morning. God, that you'd help me to say the words that would glorify you the most. I pray, Father, that you this morning would do in hearts that which is most needful. And Lord, we're trusting the effectual working of the Holy Spirit, Father, to do that which human arm would fail to do. Now, Lord, we're committing this to you and we're asking you to accomplish it. We're not asking each other. We're asking you to do this. But Lord, merely help us to be surrendered to the working of your will. Lord, we love you this morning and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this morning, I don't know really how this is going to go. I know that's not real encouraging to hear. Amen. But I want to preach to you for a few moments on this thought, the king's path to the garden. I don't know if you noticed the two passages in the correlation of what we read this morning. But I was struck by a name that is given to us in verse number 23 of 2 Samuel 15. Notice it again with me. The Bible says, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. Now, what did they pass over? The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron. Now, if you're a Bible student, you might recognize the name Kidron. It's found uh, several times, I believe about nine or ten times in the Old Testament. But it's not from the Old Testament that most of us would be familiar with it. But rather in the New Testament, there's a passage that references it as well. We didn't read it yet this morning, but we read a parallel passage of the passage that we're going to read. You still with me? Amen. We read about the Gethsemane experience of our Lord and Savior. John's Gospel does not say much about the interaction there in Gethsemane, but it gives us an important clue that correlates to the text we read in the Old Testament. It says this in John 18:1 that when Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook 
Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. As you read your Bible, you'll find that this same brook Cedron mentioned in John chapter 18 is the very brook Kidron that is mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 15. If we have any doubts, listen to what Matthew's account says about that experience in the garden. It says, And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives, which is the same place that 2 Samuel 15 and verse number 30 tells us they went. Now this morning, I very simply want to draw a parallel between these two passages. I know they always say to preach with a very pointed goal in mind. But this morning, my goal is just to show you what the Lord showed me in these passages and trust the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart as is necessary. Because when I see David uh, dejected, rejected, cast out of his own kingdom and walking out to the Garden of Gethsemane, I can't help but see a picture of my Lord and Savior. Now, the Bible says in the book of John that He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. When the Lord Jesus Christ came unto His own, you know He was a Jew. We were, we were sort of joking uh, on Wednesday night about truth and talking about truth and the impact of truth uh, in, in this world. You know, anymore you can go to jail just for telling the truth. And uh, truth is a hate speech anymore. And I was talking about uh, this truth, and I'll go ahead and give it to you. They're going to send me to jail anyway. But uh, you know that you don't find a single instance in the Bible of a homosexual coming to know Christ. I didn't say a homosexual couldn't be saved. I just merely said there's not an instance of it in the Bible. Does that upset you this morning? If it does, maybe we ought to think about how we relate to truth. I didn't say one couldn't be saved. I didn't say that none have ever been saved. Uh, If you have a loved one that you're praying for that is ensnared in that sin, keep praying for them because I believe God can save them. Amen? But there's simply not an occasion of one in the Bible. Let me give you another one. You know there's not a single instance of a white man being saved in the Bible either. I'm just telling you the truth. Does that upset you this morning? I hope not. Does the truth bother you this morning? I hope it doesn't. We're not going to preach the same message we preached last week. I'm just merely feeling you out this morning. Amen? It shouldn't bother us. Truth shouldn't upset us, and it shouldn't bother us. But as we talked about that, and, and uh, I, I, it came to my mind, you know, we have a very white view of the Word of God sometimes. I don't know, maybe you saw the same Bible cartoons that I saw growing up. Did you ever see any of those? Uh, maybe it's a little bit before your time, maybe it's a little bit after your time. They show us all these Bible cartoons. I think we've got some in the nursery, and it amazed me how uh, all the people in them were white. You ever notice that? Uh, you know that Jesus, He wasn't a white man. Are we okay this morning? Does truth bother you? That's true. He wasn't a white man. He, he wasn't a black man. He wasn't an Asian man. He was a Jewish man. He was a Jew. It behooved him, the Bible said, to be made like unto his brethren. And that he was made like unto us. And that doesn't mean white men. That just means mankind. He was a Jew. He was born uh, the son and daughter as far as his uh, fleshly body or uh, his body coming from his mother uh, and uh, Joseph being his stepfather. But he was born to a Jewish mother. And he was born with a Jewish body. And he was made like unto his brethren. He came to be king of kings and lord of lords, but he was rejected as the son of man and as a criminal. And as we read this passage and we think of what's happening in David's life, I can't help but be struck by what happened to our Lord and Savior. I want to show you a few things this morning. I don't know if you're mad at me or not, but that's okay. Amen. 
I want you to notice a few things we see in this passage. Now, as David makes this exit out of Jerusalem, and his crown has been stolen, the kingdom has been rent from him, Absalom the usurper is taking control of the place, he leaves the country that he might spare the country. You see, he's suffering that others might be saved. Can I say that even in that we see a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You know, if he had remained in the ivory palaces of glory... You and I could never know what salvation is. He had to suffer so that we could be saved. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. The Bible says that the captain of their salvation might be made perfect through his sufferings. You see, he couldn't have been a captain of our salvation if he hadn't suffered the things that he suffered. He couldn't save anyone if he hadn't died in our place. He'd still be God. He'd still be perfect. He'd still be sinless. But if he hadn't gone to the cross of Calvary and borne the reproach and suffering that he bore, then you and I, we could have never been saved from our sins. And so we find that it was an act of divine will. Some people would look at the situation with Absalom and would say, surely this was out of the will of God, but I don't think so. Because we find that God exercised his divine will through what took place this night in Jerusalem, the same way that he did the night that our Lord was betrayed and delivered into the hands of wicked men with wicked hearts. We see that this passage begins with a scorning that took place. David is being rejected. Now, some would say, well, David was rejected by Absalom, but he was not rejected by the people. But I would dare say that he wouldn't have left Jerusalem had the people been on his side. The Bible tells us in verse number 13 that the hearts of the men of Israel were after Absalom. Absalom had come in and with uh, smooth gestures and smoother words stolen away the hearts of the men of Israel so that their king, their rightful king, was rejected and cast out and his authority scorned and spurned. Could I say that we see in our Lord and Savior as he leaves Jerusalem and goes into a garden of suffering, we see a scorned and rejected king. He came to them and even Pilate asked this question, said, are you a king? And you know what the Lord said? He said, thou sayest it. In other words, what he was saying is, Pilate, I wouldn't be here if you didn't believe there was some truth to the things that they're saying. The Jews even themselves recognized his authority. They said that no man had ever taught with the authority that he taught with. When he came, and by the way, you know, the Word of God is a beautiful thing, and the will of God is a wonderful thing. Did you know that when the Lord came as their Messiah, he wasn't just bluffing. Things were structured in such a way that had the Jews accepted him... Now, you've got to be careful with what-if theology, or you'll wind up not just in left field, you'll wind up in outfield, amen? But things were structured in such a way that if they had accepted him, he could have set up the kingdom if he had chosen to. He said, I don't know about that preacher. Well, listen to what he said. They said this to him one day. They said that before the Messiah can come, Elias must first come, Elijah. Even to this day, I was studying about the Passover Seder, and even to this day, a cup is left out for Elijah, and a place is left out for Elijah, because Orthodox Jews believe that Elijah must first come before the Messiah can come. And even the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi by saying that Elijah will come before that great and fearful day of the Lord. But do you know that Christ said this, that if they had believed that John the Baptist could have been Elijah for them, he had come as their king, and they said this, we have no king but Caesar. Boy, how similar things are to the world that we live in today. I mean, listen, he's the king of kings whether we like it or not. And oh, he'd be a lord of lords and a god of gods to each and every man, woman, and child born in this world. 
He'd take the sin and the sorrow and the pain and the heartbreak away from the human experience of each person. If only they'd turn to Him. If only they'd call on Him. If only they'd put their faith in Him. But still defiant mankind shakes his fist at a thrice holy God and says, We have no king but Caesar. What do you think it's about painting the White House rainbow? It's America's way. It's the President's way of saying we have no king but Caesar. What, what do you think? What do you think the point is with all of the, the atheists trying to rip and scrub any remnant and any semblance of Christian history away from our country? What do you think that is? That is humanity saying we have no king but Caesar. He was scorned then. David was scorned as he left Jerusalem. And still today, mankind is scorning the Son of God. Still today, they're spurring His advances and His love and His compassion. Let me tell you something. There's going to come a day. They'll come a day, they'll beg for it and won't get it. They'll come a day. One thing that's not in hell is answered prayers. And they'll come a day. There's no, there's no gospel preachers in hell preaching the Word of God. There's no chance of repentance. There's no place of repentance found. You can seek for it carefully just like the rich man did. But what, what did Abraham say? He said that uh, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. We see it begins with a scorning. They rejected Him. Look down at verse number 15. We see not only a scorning, but we see a segregating. The Bible says this, And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth. Boy, what, how indicative that text is of deep and profound truth. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. We see a segregating of the king away from the country that he had ruled. I don't know if I can convey the spiritual significance of what we're seeing here, but I'm going to do my best to. Do you know that the very path that the Lord walked that day when He left the upper room and they sung a hymn and went down to the Mount of Olives was very significant? There wasn't a single, listen to me carefully, Christ took a lot of steps, but He never took a single misstep in His entire earthly ministry. And so everything was distinct and with purpose. I believe, and you don't have to believe this if you don't want to, but I believe it was the very same path that David had walked. Not because David had walked it, but because before David ever walked it, the high priest walked it. It was this pathway. In fact, uh, the scholars tell us that there was a bridge that was built expressly for this purpose, that they might leave the palace and walk the red heifer of sanctification out of the gates of the city and out to a place where the body of that beast could be slain and burned. Listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. We touched on it in Sunday school this morning, though we didn't get to say a lot about it. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 11 and 12, it says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. Now, I'm going to say a word about it here in a minute, but do you realize that the suffering of the cross of Calvary began with the Garden of Gethsemane? And Christ denoted this. In fact, I'll go ahead and touch on it because we do see suffering here as well. But listen to what it says in Luke chapter 22. Now, Christ is there gathered at the, uh, in the upper room at the Passover table, and He said unto them, With desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
What he was saying was this, I wanted to get this Passover eaten before I would go out and begin the process of being betrayed into the hands of wicked men and suffering and dying for your sins. The Garden of Gethsemane, that great sorrowful place where he sweat, as it were, drops of blood and where angels had to come and strengthen him was the very place that the sufferings of the cross began. It was there that his divine will, which was always in harmony but in some mysterious way was surrendered to the will of the Father. It was there that the sufferings of what would take place began to creep into his soul and into his mind. It was there that he prayed and said, If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But he had to go without the gate to do so. Because in the Old Testament, the red heifer was a picture of the sanctifying ability of the suffering of that beast upon those to be made fit before the presence of God that would go and minister before him. Did you ever wonder what the Hebrews writer is talking about when he says that our consciences have been sprinkled? He's not talking about baptism because there's no, listen carefully, there is no scriptural premise for sprinkling as a means of baptism. But what he's talking about is when the covenant was sanctified on in Exodus chapter 24 when uh, the Moses and Aaron and Abihu and uh, 70 of the elders of Israel went before the presence of God and literally saw his throne room. You say, that's not, yeah, it's in there. Turn to Exodus 24 and read it sometime. It's in there. They saw a paved work of sapphire stone as the clearness and brightness of the firmament. And they saw God there, it says in Exodus chapter 24. And a covenant was made. A sacrifice was given. And Moses comes back down with the law of God and he uh, slays, uh, takes that sacrifice and the blood from it and sprinkles uh, hyssop upon it and begins to sprinkle and sanctify the people with it. And it was only through the sprinkling of that blood that they could be sanctified and made fit for the presence of God. And you say, what are you talking about, preacher? I'm saying this, all that had to happen without the gate. Because if it had happened within the gate... You know the picture of the scapegoat in the book of Leviticus, don't you? The idea that the sins had to be carried out and had to be carried away. The Bible says Jesus went without the gate, suffering and bearing reproach. He literally, in going out, was a picture of that scapegoat upon whom all the sins of humanity had been placed on the shoulders and He carried the sin without the gate that He might deal with it and sanctify it there. He had to be separated and segregated from the people. And He was segregated from the people. He was set apart that he might suffer in their stead. And in the same way, David would follow that very same path where the high priest had walked and took that beast outside of the city. And only through that, listen carefully, could he save the city. It's the only way. He said, if we stay here, Absalom is going to destroy the city with the edge of the sword. Only through that way could the city be saved, and only through that way could you and I be redeemed. We see in this passage a segregating taking place. I see not only a segregating, but I see a suffering. Notice what it says down in verse number 23. The Bible says, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. Now, it's interesting when it says all the country, because we know that there was a portion of the country that would not have been weeping because they were confederates with Absalom. But the Bible distinguishes only those that were loyal to David as being the country. Only those that had retained their loyalty for the true king. And you know, it was a small crowd around the cross that day. A small crowd around the cross. John and a handful of women that followed him up that road, weeping. He turned and looked at him and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. You know why he said that? Because with that, the Jews were relegating themselves to 
the, to an entire lifetime's worth of suffering and persecution. They said this, they said, His blood be upon us and our children. And it has. It has. The Jews have suffered more than any other people group in the history of mankind. And so he turned and he said, Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. And there was great crying and great weeping on that day. It was not with the mass of people, but with those that knew what was happening. There was great weeping. And isn't that always how it is? Let me tell you something. We're, we're, we're going to have to learn as Christians how to live as exiles in our own country. And sometimes it's easy to drive yourself crazy as you look at a world that should be weeping but is instead laughing. But you see, the people that really know have always wept. The people that really know what's going on, they've always wept. And they're still weeping. There's a whole group of society that rejoices in the iniquity of the day that we live in. But those that really know what it'll mean will weep. Will weep. There's a suffering that was taking place. There's a severing that was taking place. As they were going out of the city, this is very interesting to me. Zadok, who was a Levite. Well, listen to what it says. Look down at verse number 24. It says, And lo, Zadok also, and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. Look down at verse 29. It says, Zadok therefore and Abiathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. We see a severing in some mysterious way between the king and the presence of God. We know that's what the ark was, don't we? The ark was a picture of the presence of God. It was the express and manifest. Not to say that God wasn't with them when the ark was not with them. In fact, there were times when the ark was with them that God wasn't with them. But it was a symbol of the express, effectual, manifest presence of God. When God sat down on earth, He sat down on the ark. And as David leaves the city, they're carrying the ark of God. And David turns and says, leave the ark of God. He goes on to say that it may be that I'll come back to this place and I want the ark to be there. But David understood what that would mean. He understood that for the first time in his life, he was getting ready to be in exile from the presence of God for a little while. I'm not going to try to explain everything with this because I'll be honest with you, I couldn't. But I understand that in some mysterious way, I understand that Jesus Christ is God. Don't you know that? Yeah. I understand that. I understand He's always been God. Yeah. I understand He always will be God. But in some mysterious way, something changed on Calvary for just a glimpse, just a moment in time about the relationship that Christ had with His Father. In some way, something about that Godhead was severed for just a moment, for you and I. All his entire earthly ministry, when he spoke of his Father, he'd call him Father. He'd say, when you pray, pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He'd say, I and my Father are one. And all through the Bible, every time that Christ spoke of, of the first person of the Trinity, he always called him his Father. But on Calvary, he did not. For that brief moment, he called him his God. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can't explain much about it except to explain this. That before Calvary, we didn't have a relationship with God as our Father. 
Because it's the Spirit of God that indwells us, that enables us to cry, Abba, Father. And before Calvary and before the resurrection, men were not indwelt perpetually by the Spirit of God. But I understand that after Christ cried out, My God, instead of my Father, now all of a sudden, He can be my Father. I understand that something was severed there that you and I, once we've been joined through Calvary, might never be severed from God. We see a severing that's taking place. We see a sorrowing that's taking place. Notice what it says in our text. Look down at verse number 25 and 26. We see a sorrowing and we see a surrendering. It says this, and I think this is very, very explicit, don't you? If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, David says, He will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. David says this about his relationship with the Lord. Now, David understands this truth. David knows he's the rightful and anointed king of Israel. Does he not? He knows that. Old Samuel, and Samuel's not around anymore, but old Samuel had come had uncorked the horn, had poured the oil, had declared him to be king. And David had seen God take the kingdom away from Saul and place it into a shepherd boy's hands. And now this young man that had spent all of his youth tending sheep is now the warrior king of Israel and is unchallenged as far as his authority. He knows the kingdom is his. But just because he knows the kingdom is his, that doesn't mean he's not surrendered to the Lord. You get what I'm saying? Just because he knows the kingdom is his, that doesn't mean he still doesn't have to surrender. Can I give you a little bit of truth here? And I hope you'll really grasp this. Just because you know what the will of God is, that doesn't mean you don't have to surrender to the will of God. Just because you're doing the will of God, that doesn't mean that surrender is not still a part of the will of God. You came to church this morning. You probably knew it was the will of God. If you didn't know that, you could ask me. Amen? You came to church this morning, you knew it was the will of God, but did you come in the right way? I know my flesh has been fighting me this morning. I don't know if yours fights you, but mine fights me. There's still a surrender that has to take place. And in this way, we see a vivid picture of our Lord and Savior who knew that the cross of Calvary was the divine will of God for Him. But still He said, Lord, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the fact that when he surrendered, he wasn't just surrendering to the drinking of the cup, he was surrendering to the passing of the cup as well. You know, I think Christ had enough foresight to understand what Calvary would mean, don't you? Let me ask you this. Do you think that God is the better or the worse for Calvary? Stop and think about it now. Do you think that God's in better shape now after Calvary than He was before Calvary? I understand. You can nitpick that if you want. But the Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 53, that, that it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Why? Because He could see. Jesus. It says this in Hebrews chapter number 12, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. I'd say this, I'd say God's better off now than He was before Calvary. 
Oh, I know, you can nitpick it, be theological if you want, but you know what I'm saying. So when Christ surrendered to the passing or the drinking of the cup, He wasn't just surrendering to the drinking of the cup, He was surrendering to the passing of the cup. You know what He was saying? He was saying, nevertheless, not my will. But I thought His will and the Father's will were the same. They are the same. But still He surrendered, because though He were a son, yet learned the obedience to the things which He suffered. Not because He was disobedient, but because even if you're obedient, you still have to be obedient. Even if you surrender, you still have to surrender. Even if you're going the right way, you still have to be willing to. And so He surrendered His will. David knew He was coming back. David understood that that throne belonged to him. But he said, if the Lord delight in me, then I'll come back. And if He doesn't delight in me, not what I want, but what the Lord wants. Oh, mysteries more deep and more profound than this small mind will ever really fathom. But enough for me to understand this, that I'm always the better for surrendering to the will of God, whatever it is. If it was good enough for Jesus Christ, I believe the will of God is good enough for you and good enough for me too. We see in this passage a surrendering taking place. I'm going to mention one more and I'm going to hush. I've got more, but I'm not going to. You know, when you got 56 points on your, your notes, you got to pick sometimes. Look down at verse 31. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount, where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. Unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. Let me read you another verse. John chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter had said, I'll follow you unto death. The Lord said, You'll deny me before the sun rises. There's always some that claim allegiance. Peter said, I want to follow you. The Lord said, you can't follow me now. Hushai said, I want to follow you, David. David said, you'd be a burden to me now. You cannot follow me. Verse 34, but if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then thou mayest defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. We see a separating taking place. Hushai was left in Jerusalem because he had a work to do. The king had left, but the king was returning. But there was a work for Hushai to do. If Hushai had gone then, it would have been far better for him. But to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so Hushai had a job to do in Jerusalem. And so he was left behind. You know, Paul said this, about Christ's earthly ministry. He said, though we now know Him no more after the flesh. The book of Colossians. Though we know Him now no more after the flesh. We don't have the same relationship to Jesus Christ that the disciples had. In some ways, we have a far better one. But do you know why we're left here? Do you know why you're here? Do you know why David left Hushai in Jerusalem? And do you know why our David left you and I here? Because there's a work for us to do. There's an adversary seeking to overthrow his influence. 
just as Ahithophel was seeking to overthrow the influence of David in Jerusalem. And there's a work for me and you to do. You may wonder sometimes why you're here. Can I encourage you by saying this? You're here with purpose. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. To die is gain. If God didn't have a work for you to do, He wouldn't have you here. But you're here because there is a work for you to do. There might be somebody that you and you alone can be a witness to. There might be somebody that you and you alone can be an encouragement to. There might be a place of service for you to be in that no one else, no one else can fill that spot in that place. One thing's for sure. If the king has left us here and we're his servants, then evidently there's something in the king's will for us to be doing here. That's what the servant is for, right? The servant is to serve the king. You're here not for your own pleasure, but for his good pleasure and to serve Him. I wonder what it is that God has for you to do. I wonder if maybe it's been a matter of surrendering. I'd say this, if it's good enough for the Lord to surrender to God's will, it's good enough for you and I to surrender to God's will. Maybe God's been dealing with you about something in your life. If He has, I want you to surrender to Him this morning. Not for me and not for you, but for Him and for His glory. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, the musician slips to the piano. The altar is open this morning. And if God's spoken to your heart, I want you to come. You say, but preacher, I feel like everything's going pretty well, but are you surrendered? You say, well, I serve the Lord because I want to serve the Lord. Well, that's good, but are you surrendered? You say, preacher, God's been dealing with me about something in my life, and, and I don't think it's a big deal. Well, if it wasn't a big deal, He wouldn't be dealing with you, so surrender. And whatever it is that God has touched on your heart about, just surrender to Him. And you'll find you're the better for it. Maybe there's a work for you to do. You know, God's still calling people to the mission field. God's still calling preachers to preach. God's still calling His children to serve Him and to do things for Him. Maybe God's been stirring your heart and your soul. As she begins to play, if God's dealt with your heart, I want you to come.